0: Let's take our Bibles now, putting our hymn books aside, take our Bibles out, and will you turn with me to 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy. There are manuscripts in the back if you'd like those. Today we return to our series on the conscience. And we will begin in 1 Timothy, we will also be in Hebrews chapter 5 today. But today is the fourth message on the conscience. And today we'll consider a good conscience desired. A good conscience desired. I was praising the Lord over these last two weeks. <clears throat> As I've been going through my study, I just had a sense that I had not better wrapped my arms around what I was trying to preach to you on the conscience. So... Jared, would you move forward just one slide? So far, what we've talked about with our conscience has been the nature of the conscience from Romans chapter 2. Conscience is something that bears witness. It approves or it disapproves. It affirms or it rejects. That's the nature of the conscience. It's that inner impulse to do what we should do. That's the con- conscience. Conscience. We talked about the way the conscience worked. And we saw the testimony of Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. We saw the working of the conscience. Then last week, we saw the conscience cleansed. I wanted to modify it by saying we saw an evil conscience cleansed. And that's the first need of any person in his conscience. He needs his conscience to be cleansed. We saw that from Hebrews 9 and chapter 10. So now we move on. And we see a good conscience desired, a good conscience desired. So brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's bow before the Lord once more and ask for his help as we look at his word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the benefit to have it in our language and the good health as well as a number of things you've given us so that we can have it today and be able to hear it today. We pray that it would be effective now, and that you would illumine our hearts to what you mean by what you say. We pray for that in Jesus name. Amen. I have a friend who restores old trucks, very old trucks, and he might be sitting on the front row with his wife, an award-winning photographer. On a number of occasions, I have seen this man take portions of an old truck, sand them down, cut parts off, weld other parts on, sand them down, paint them, and reattach them. And piece by piece, the truck is restored to its former glory, just as if it came off the assembly line years ago. And then from time to time, I look out and I see that truck sitting in the parking lot across from the church. And I smile because I think he got it working. He got it working. That's just great. Now, for three weeks, we have been studying the conscience, what it is and how it works. Naturally, every one of us has an evil conscience, which means that the conscience knows the evil within us, and it testifies against us because of that evil. And it's by the conscience that every single person knows that there is deep, something deeply wrong with himself. He knows there's a problem. And the first need of every single person is that he be cleansed of his evil conscience. And that help, happens at salvation. That's what we studied in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. The evil conscience is cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a strange science, isn't it? How is it that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses the conscience? We have to recall that the conscience functions on knowledge. That is to say, when the gospel is set against sin, when a person comes to know the gospel, his conscience agrees with God that sin has been taken away by Jesus Christ and that the sinner is freely justified by faith. And through that, God cleanses the conscience, allowing a believer to no longer shrink away from a holy God, but to boldly approach God. One of the chief blessings of a cleansed conscience is that sense of freedom that you and I have to approach God, to draw near to God. That's that sense that we enjoy on the Lord's day when we come here and we don't feel strange to do it. We don't feel strange to sing God's praises as if we're not supposed to be around him. We have the sense that we've been cleansed, and we can live for him. We can sing his praises. We can come to him. Now, when someone comes to faith in Christ, his conscience begins to work in such a way that it has not previously done. A non-believer definitely has a conscience, and he has the work of the law in his heart, So he he has a general sense of right and wrong. We saw that in Romans chapter 2. But a believer has the law of God written on his heart. That's part of the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah 31. It's the new convert who knows the love of God, who loves God, who has first loved him, 1 John 4. It is the convert who now has the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide him in the truth. God begins to work in him in such a way that he desires to do God's will, and he begins to execute God's will. And it is the Spirit of God who works through the conscience, pointing us towards the way in which we must must walk. You say, well, which way should we walk? We learn that way in 1 Timothy the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to his young protege Timothy, who was the pastor of the Church of Ephesus, Paul set forth the goal of preaching. And to, to think about it maybe on a very mundane level, we might say, Paul explained the purpose of Sunday morning sermons. Say, what are they supposed to accomplish? This is what they're supposed to accomplish. 1 Timothy 1 5. The aim or the goal of our charge is love. You see, the goal of all faithful preaching of the Word is love. And what is love except the essence of God's law? To love Him wholeheartedly and others as a means of loving God wholeheartedly. And when God's Word is set forth faithfully, God's people will be called to love Him. That's the stuff. That's the aim of preaching. But what we need to notice is that the love that God Desires springs from three sources. First Timothy one verse five. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, the goal of love, it sits on top of a tripod. Three legs that support it. And those three legs are a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Without those, you can't have love. And this is where we come to our study on the conscience. A good conscience is necessary for developing the love that God desires. So what that shows us is that each one of us needs a good conscience because we all need to be developing love. This morning we're going to consider a good conscience in two parts. First, we'll see in 1 Timothy 1 that a good conscience is scripturally informed. Second, we'll learn in Hebrews 5 that a good conscience is a working conscience. So two simple points today. First in 1 Timothy 1, We see a good conscience is a scripturally informed conscience because Christian love from a good conscience is built upon sound doctrine. Paul was very concerned about what was being taught in Ephesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain people not to, and here it is, teach. He was very concerned about what was being taught, and he didn't want certain things taught, that you may charge certain people not to teach another or any different doctrine. Paul is here concerned about heterodoxy in the church. Why? Why? Well, because unsound teaching deviates from a good conscience that is necessary for love. Unsound teaching promotes speculation, not faith. Look at verses 3 and 4. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, instead of the truth that is given to us in the revealed Word of God, folks were devoting themselves to myths, to genealogies. And the more that they taught, the more questions people had. Now, kids, just imagine with me for a moment. You go to school, and you go to school to learn. But imagine going to school, and the more that you listened, the more and more you became confused by what the teacher was teaching you. Imagine returning home and feeling like you hadn't learned anything. Instead, you'd actually become more confused about everything. For example, you thought that maybe 12 plus 12 was really easy, but now it seems really hard. Anyways, that's what Timothy was facing in Ephesus. People were devoted to myths and endless debates. Speculations, questions were raised. But instead that was the problem because they weren't being grounded in the faith. So Paul warns Timothy about getting involved in these things. 2 Timothy 2.23 says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Why? You know that they breed quarrels. You see, unsound teaching promotes speculation, not faith. Unsound teaching will not result in faith, and quarrel. Secondly, unsound teaching will not produce love. Look at verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these... You have to figure out what are the these that Paul is referring to. It goes back to verse 5. Certain persons, by swerving from these things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, by swerving from them, have wandered away into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they're making confident assertions. So these folks want to be teachers, but they lack understanding. Of course, that's the worst kind of teacher, someone who wants to do something but doesn't have the capacity to do it. And Jesus referred to these kinds of folks as blind in Matthew 23. And such blind guides are not going to lead God's people to love God and to love others. We know that because the text tells us they have deviated from teaching what's necessary for a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul's point is that heterodoxy, unsound teaching, It's divisive, not constructive. Endless debating, it doesn't build up. Debating tears down. And so Paul warns Timothy about it, and he charges him to put a stop to it in the church. And since we've studied the book of Revelation, it seems that Timothy listened to Paul because they were very careful about those who were teaching there in Ephesus. So unsound teaching is not going to produce a good conscience. The conscience functions based on knowledge. And if the teaching is unsound, one is not going to be sure of what one ought to do. If you're, if you're not sure what you ought to do, the conscience isn't going to work very well. If It's always questioning. We won't know what's right. But sound teaching, on the other hand, promotes a good conscience that's necessary for love. If you think about a good conscience as if it's a machine, a good conscience needs to be finely tuned. It needs to have all of its gears greased. Well, how? By sound teaching. Sound teaching that affirms the moral law. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You see, sound teaching is going to plainly present God's absolutes. It's going to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. And that's extremely beneficial because the conscience is something, it's a faculty that registers for or against. The conscience works, that's right, go ahead and do it. It works, that's wrong, don't do it. And this human faculty needs to be tuned by God's law so that it truly registers right and wrong person is newly saved, his evil conscience is cleansed, but his sense of right and wrong needs to be brought into further alignment with the law of God. Now, let me test you to see if you're understanding what I'm saying. Is a conscience good simply because you do what you think you should do? Does that make a conscience good? If you do what you think you should do, does that mean you have a good conscience? Let me ask the question differently to sharpen your understanding. Did Lot have a good conscience when Lot offered his two daughters to the men of Sodom? In Genesis chapter 18, 19. Some of you remember the story where God was determined to destroy Sodom. He sent two angels. They went to get Lot and family out. You remember how the men of the city wanted those two. And instead of being inhospitable to those two guests that Lot received, Lot chose to offer his daughters. So the question was, was Lot in good conscience to offer his daughters, which is probably the custom of the city? You see, there's the point. There is a difference between what is right and what we think is right. Sound teaching is necessary so that what we think is right is aligned with what is actually right. And it's only when our conscience is aligned with God's Word that it will be good and able to blossom into love. You see, what Lot did in offering his daughters was not loving. He may have acted in what some might think is good conscience, but it was not good because it did not align with the law of God. So, sound teaching is necessary for a good conscience. And sound teaching is going to affirm God's moral law. It's also going to affirm the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 11 of 1 Timothy. The Bible says, "...and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel, of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted." You see, the conscience's sense of right and wrong also needs to be tuned by the gospel. When it says gospel here, it's probably not referring to the death and resurrection of Christ. Instead, it's referring to the gospel era that has displaced many of the requirements of the Old Covenant. Let me give you an example of this. Young people, you remember 1 Kings chapter 18, where there was the showdown between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember how they had altars built. They had sacrifices put on the altars. And they were supposed to call on their God and call fire down from heaven. You remember that Elijah did so. That fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And Baal didn't do anything for the prophets of Baal. Do you remember how that story ended? Whatever happened to those prophets of Baal? Well, exactly what the law required. The law, according to Deuteronomy 13, teaches that false prophets are supposed to be put to death. That's what happened on that day on Mount Carmel. Okay, so that's what the law teaches. Are we supposed to practice religious holy war then today? If people don't convert, if people treat something else, are they supposed to be put to death? You know, there are Christians through the centuries that believe so. You have the Crusaders. You have people like Zwingli who fought the Catholics. Calvin who had Servetus put to death. The list goes on. And even there were some early American Christians, settlers, who didn't tolerate those who weren't Christian. Because the New World was supposed to be a Christian nation, they did not tolerate those who wouldn't be Christian. You say, well, what about us? Well, we stand at a point in history where we understand more plainly, we have a responsibility as a church to wield the word of God and not the sword of the state. We don't cut off heads because we won't convert. We know we shouldn't do that. Instead, we should give them the gospel. We know that today. That's just one example of the fact that there are things that were true in the Old Testament that now in the era of the gospel, are not the same. That's just one example. There are many examples of things that have been set aside. But one of the reasons we know this is because the church today is not made up of one nation. It's made up of many nations. So that there's a testimony to God's grace from every nation, that's the church. And the conscience has to be tuned by not only the moral law of God, but also... The gospel of God as well. And when it is tuned by those things, only then can love spring up. So a good conscience needs sound teaching. Say, well, what does that mean practically for us? Well, what it meant for Timothy was those who teach in the church need to teach sound doctrine. If they won't, stop them. They mustn't. So the same thing has to be expected of every, anyone who teaches the Word today. The same kind of thing needs to be in our thoughts when we edify each other with the Word of God. Our opinions, our thoughts, are not going to be effective in helping other people become loving. But God's Word, what He says, as we take that and minister that to each other, that will help someone else grow in grace and knowledge and knowledge and in love. So we have to have that sense. The only way we're going to get the love that God wants is through ministering sound doctrine. Now the flip side of that, the flip side of ministering sound doctrine is receiving teaching. We have to value ministries that preach the Word. You know, we live in a day that markets the church because churches want to keep the doors open and they believe that if they cater to every whim of the people outside the church, then those people outside will come into the church and they'll join the church. So many churches today have lots of bells and whistles and smoke and lights, but no biblical teaching. That's a problem. People may like them, may be fascinated by them. They may think they have a great experience. The question is, is there any biblical teaching that's going to yield the love that God wants? I want you just to just reflect for a moment. Isn't it the case for many professing Christians today that the way that they act is just like Lot who offered his daughters to the men of the city? They think they're doing just fine when what they are doing is blatantly against God's Word. And perhaps they don't know any better because they've never been taught any better. Because their church doesn't teach it. So, why do I say all that? We have to be committed to ministries that teach the Word. We have to be committed to being taught the truth, and we ought to have no appetite for a place that will teach a lot of perhaps helpful things, psychological things, heartwarming things, but not the truth of God's Word. We have to have no appetite for that kind of human reasoning, speculation. We need the truth because it's only through the truth that the conscience can be good and approve what it should approve. So, let's wrap up the teaching of 1 Timothy 1. It's through the preaching of the Word that God wants to produce love in us. And He wants to form in us this love, which is a sacrificial attitude and volitional action that works for the best of another person regardless of a personal cost. That's love. That love can only be formed when people are well taught in God's Word. So that among other things, three things, a good conscience is developed that is finely tuned by the Scriptures. We need a good conscience if we're going to get love. That's what we find in 1 Timothy. Let's turn back in our Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 5. We turn to the second point of the message this morning. The first was that a good conscience is scripturally informed. In Hebrews 5, we see that a good conscience is a working conscience, We see that the mature are experienced in distinguishing good from evil. Hebrews chapter 5 is going to give us a comparison of two kinds of Christians. Why don't you look with me in Hebrews 5, and you see the first kind of Christian described at the end of verse 13. You see the last word? The first kind of Christian is a child or a babe or an infant, depending on your translation. That's one kind. You see in the beginning of verse 14, solid food is for the, here's the second one, for the mature. You have the infant, the child, and you have the mature. And we need to know what is the difference between these two. Well, the immature are unskilled in the word of righteousness. The immature are stunted in their growth. Look at verses 11 and 12. I begin in verse 12. for. Though by this time, Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. That's a condemning word. You know, today we have people who wait till their 30s to get married. Whereas years ago, like my grandparents, for example, they were married in their late teens, and that was normal. That's people got married. You say, what's the difference between then and now? Well, it seems our society has extended the period of adolescence. It's okay to be a child longer in life. Before you get serious, we'll say in, decide what to do with your life or settle down. It's okay for a child to still be childish at 28. But what we have to realize is, you know, there's a time for a child to be a child. You know, children cry. They can't sit still. They have the attention span in minutes of their age, right? But they're a child. We expect that of a child. We don't expect the same of someone who's 28 to do that kind of thing. It's time to grow up. And that's what's happening here in Hebrews. They weren't what they ought to have been according to the time that they had been Christians. You say, well, what what stunted their growth? Why aren't they growing like they should? Go back to verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Why? Well, because you have become dull of hearing. It seems that these... Christians were stunted in their growth because of the reception of God's Word. They were dull of hearing. And that is to show us that the immature, they're not doers of the Word. Look at verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the Word of righteousness, since he's a child. They're stunted in their growth because they aren't putting God's Word into practice. Perhaps they're very knowledgeable, but they're inexperienced, unskilled. Perhaps they know the basics of the Christian faith, but they haven't learned how to walk in the way of righteousness. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, they haven't learned to yield their members as instruments of righteousness unto God. They're complacent. They're apathetic. Why? Because they don't use their conscience at all. Their conscience just sits there. They accumulate knowledge. They don't use their conscience. It's as if their conscience is rusty, spiritually speaking. Now, doesn't that explain the state of many Christians? And perhaps maybe it explains one of us? Isn't it easy for us to go through motions, for us to align with certain religious standards But when it actually comes to putting what we know into practice, there's nothing there. There's no morning prayer, Lord, what do you want me to do, given what I've learned from your word today? There's no prayer along those lines at all. Instead, it's simply, I go to church, I listen, I go home, that's it. Complacent. The conscience isn't engaged at all. There's no prayerful reflection on the preached Word of God. There's no a commitment to apply it. And when that is the state of the Christian, that is a childish state in contrast to a mature state. When they're dull of hearing, just unresponsive to what God says. Now we have, by contrast, the mature, verse 14. The mature are experienced in distinguishing evil from good. The mature are those who are doers of the Word. They practice they are practiced in the word of righteousness. Verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature. Were they? For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. You see, the mature are active. They're experienced. The word there, when it says trained, is a word that we get our word gym from. See, people who go to the gym, they work out their muscles. You've seen people do that, right? They work out their muscles. You know, it's the mature in this passage who work out the implications of what God has revealed in the Word. They work out the implications of the word of righteousness. They practice what they hear preached. They apply during the day what they learn in their devotions. You say, that's very simple. It is simple. It's some of the basic things of the Christian faith. But many people just don't do it. They're content to hear, but not to do. You remember James talked about that. Is that how you define a mature Christian, I ask? Have you ever thought of a mature Christian as a Christian who just knows everything? I mean, that's a mature Christian. He has has an answer for anything. Well, it is true that a mature Christian may know a lot of things, but what this text is trying to get us to focus on is that a mature Christian is someone who applies what God says regularly. Not simply that he knows a lot about what God has said, but he applies it. Maturity is that state when a Christian applies the Scripture. He acts according to his informed conscience, and thereby he exhibits Christian love. He's a doer. That results in him having a good conscience. They're able to distinguish good from evil. And the term that we have here is a term that is used in the medical profession. It talks about a doctor who is able to diagnose his patient. You know that a doctor studies and then he practices so that when someone comes to him with a particular rash or an ailment, he's able to identify what that is and to treat it accordingly. He's been given skill. He's he's become experienced in diagnosing the situation. And it's in that case that Christians who practice the Word of Righteousness When you are faithful to apply what you learn, you become able to distinguish what pleases God and what doesn't please God. That's what Paul prayed for when he prayed for the Philippian believers, that they would develop this kind of discernment. Paul said, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It takes knowledge, it takes discernment if we're going to develop love. I began today talking about a friend who restores trucks. He has the ability to make those beautiful again, to tune them up, and they get them back on the road. And it's a good car that's tuned up and drives. That's a good car. So it is that a good conscience is one that is tuned by God's Word, and trained through regular application of the Word of God. And it's that good conscience that Paul holds up and says, you need this. You need to desire this. A good conscience. You need it because it is necessary to develop the love that God desires in your life and in my life. Let's pray for that. Father, as we close then, Help us to realize what you want from us, how you want us to develop love. Not the love that our society talks about, but the love that you describe in your word. And help us to realize that we'll never get there if we don't have a good conscience that's informed by your word and regularly applying it. So, Lord... Would you help us today to be committed to apply what you teach us, to be committed each day to simply apply what we learn as we open the Bible? Father, help us in that regard so that we wouldn't be complacent, we wouldn't be apathetic, we wouldn't choose to approve things that are wrong, we wouldn't choose to give ourselves to endless debates that divide, but instead that we would build others up, instead that we would love others as you desire. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.